What does a contraction feel like? How do I know if I'm in labor? And what does a day of labor look like? Wait, is this normal? Hey, I'm Heidi. My best friends call me Hydes. I'm a certified birth doula, host of this podcast, and author of Birth Story, an interactive pregnancy guidebook. I have supported hundreds of women through their labor and deliveries, and I believe every one of them and you deserves a microphone and a stage. So here we are. Listen each week to get answers to these tough questions. Birth Story, where we talk about pregnancy, labor, deliveries, where we tell our stories and share our feelings. And of course, chat about our favorite baby products and motherhood. And because I'm passionate about birth outcomes, you will hear from some of the top experts in labor and delivery. Whether you are pregnant, trying desperately to get pregnant, or you just love a good birth story, I hope you will stick around and be part of this birth story family. Hey guys, thanks for being here. A couple of quick things. One, if you haven't picked up your copy of the Birth Story Pregnancy Guidebook and Journal, then I hope that you'll go to birthstory.com today and use the code birthstorypodcast for $5 off. This book is a 529-page comprehensive guide to pregnancy and birth. It's three in one. So you get these adorable postcards from the womb, which is a note from your baby to you about their development that week. Then there are about 25 birth affirmations, 42 journaling prompts, and 42 postcards and 42 birth stories with all of the key terms as pop-outs that you need to know for your birthing time. So if you or a friend or a loved one is pregnant and you are looking for a great pregnancy book, journal, and guide to get you through this amazing time, then head over to birthstory.com. Thanks again for being here, and I hope you learned something great from today's episode. Hey guys, this upcoming episode is Jasmine Katatakarn talking all about fertility. Grab a tissue box. Let's get to it. Hey, Jasmine, welcome to the Birth Story Podcast. How are you? I'm good, Heidi. Thank you for having me. Today, we have Jasmine Katatakarn on the Birth Story Podcast, and we are going to be digging in deep to fertility. And Jasmine has a really unique perspective on a six-year-long fertility journey. She's an artist in New York City, and she has a really strong method for digging through your own approach to controlling your fertility journey, tips for being happy in your life despite struggling with infertility, and radical mindset shifts that help everyone overcome fertility struggles. And so we're going to talk about her birth story as well with this long fertility journey that has a happy ending, which not all fertility journeys have. And Jasmine, before we dig in, I was just hoping that you would share with the audience a little bit more about who you are, where you live, and how we can find you. I live in New York City, and I work in computer animation on feature animated films. So if you've seen any Ice Age movie, Rio, Ferdinand, Spies in Disguise, I have worked on those movies, and that's my day job. I was actually born in New York City and I grew up in Long Island. And you can find me on social Instagram at Jazzcatat. That's 
J-A-Z-Z with two Z's, Katak, K-A-T-A-T. If you're interested in fertility specifically, I do have a free training for that that you can find on my website under jazzkatak.com slash free training. Cool. You just became the most interesting guest I've ever had. And I like, I'm having this moment where I'm like wishing I didn't have a birth story podcast. And then I could just talk to you for an hour about being a computer animator on the coolest movie in the world, Ferdinand. Oh, you like Ferdinand. Yes. And so do both of my kids. (laughs) So trying to work and be a full-time mom at the same time, which is, which is a challenge. Yeah. You've got three moms right here nodding our heads kind of in solidarity with you that are just in the thick of it during this pandemic and working from home and homeschooling. And so this is a great time to introduce to everyone listening. So I have my two friends with me tonight, Louise and Katie. And the reason that I have hand-selected them to record with me tonight is because Louise has had a long fertility journey. And I really felt like that she would grow from what you have to share with us today, Jasmine. And Katie is one of the funniest people that I know and in a podcast club with me. And so I know she's going to chime in with some really great questions for you throughout this episode. So thank you for being with us. And we're going to spend the next hour together diving into the six years leading up to having a child. And we just can't wait to learn from you, Jasmine. So the first thing I would want to dig into is like, when did you get married? How old were you? And when did you decide that you wanted to start a family? Yeah, so I had it all planned out. Well, it happened at a young age where I I was kind of taught and believed, I kind of followed it blindly, but the social norms of the steps that you're supposed to take in life, which is study hard, go to a good college, have a good career, get married, have 2.5 kids, you know, work hard and retire. And I was totally following along that path. So, and I definitely am the planner. So get married by 28. And that's, that's around the time I actually got married is 28. And my master plan was, it feels so naive saying it now, but start trying at 30. So I have two years, you know, to kind of have fun before kids start at 30. And by 35, I would have three kids. No problem. Like, I was like, yeah, five years, have three kids. That's perfect. And then I would go along the plan. So that's essentially what happened. We got married. At, I, I met my husband actually in college when I was only 19 and he was 18. So we dated for 10 years before we actually got married. And we got married at 28. And I joked with my friends after I did, because we traveled a lot. So I was like, after I do the Inca Trail, I'm going to start trying to get pregnant because I was like, it's, it's going to be like a big bucket list off my, you know, off my checklist. And um, I did the Inca Trail right before I was 30 and I started trying right after. And I still remember after the first month of trying, I joked with my husband. I was like, oh, I'm not pregnant yet. I'm, I'm so surprised. And of course, it was a joke, but at the same time, you know, I'm also very impatient. And, you know, it turned out one month, then three months later, then six months and nine months, and all of a sudden it's a year later, and I'm still not pregnant. And that's when, of course, we started getting really concerned. So we went to see my doctor, and she said, well, uh, it's time to go see a specialist if you've been trying for a month, I mean, a year. 
And we went to see a specialist and we went through all our the tests that they run on both sides, me and my husband. And they didn't find anything. They said everything looked okay, but clearly something must be going on since we had have hadn't even gotten pregnant once within that year. And then they diagnosed us with unexplained infertility. That is a really frustrating diagnosis for those that, you know, never experience it. Cause whenever you have a problem, right, you wanna the first thing you want to do is find the solution. But when given undiagnosed spleened infertility, it's kind of just like something's wrong with you, but we don't know. So what happened then is I one started doing IUI treatments because they, they said, well, let's try doing IUI. And for those that don't know, because I know your listeners aren't specifically uh, fertility related, I always joke that the IUI treatment is similar to like what you would see in in TV shows of like the medical version of the turkey baster, um, where they kind of time your cycle and they insert the sperm at a very uh, at the right moment, essentially. So we did that. And sometimes it's with meds and without meds. Um, in the beginning, we did it without meds and then eventually with meds to kind of help stimulate and sometimes get more eggs in there. And we did that four times, four IUI cycles with no success. And at this point, you know, a year, like it was 31 before I even started seeing a specialist. Another year goes by doing like the IUIs, years are going by. It goes by quickly. And during all this also, I'm Googling, I'm in the Google rabbit hole, trying to figure out what, what might work, right? How do you get pregnant? Is it this, these foods or that special magical ingredient you know, that will do it? It's hard. And you're also seeing all these people around you get pregnant seemingly really easily. And it's frustrating. You feel like it's very personal, right? How can you get more personal than that? Your body isn't doing something that it's made to do. So after the fourth IUI that didn't work, the doctor started saying, you know, maybe we should look into IVF. And IVF, for those that don't know, is in in vitro fertilization, which is a lot of meds, injections. It requires a surgical retrieval of the eggs where they actually take the eggs out of you. And then depending on what you do, they fertilize it with the sperm and then they put it, they transfer it back in. Yeah. I have a couple of questions before mm-hmm. we get super down your story, Jasmine, because so much like is like boiling up for me. And here I am sitting, you know, with Louise, who's been mm-hmm. on a very similar path. And there's a, a lot of feelings and emotions in this room right now. And I know there's a lot of feelings and emotions with a lot of people that are listening. And I, my goal is that someone's going to push pause on this podcast and they're going to text or call a friend that they know has been struggling with infertility. And then they're going to gift them this episode to help provide them some comfort and some solidarity and friendship in someone else who's been on a similar path. For anyone that is maybe new or like newer on that first year. I have a couple of questions about those first 12 months. Okay. Were you having sex? Like, were you timing your cycle and having sex like when you were ovulating or were you and your husband just like, we're young, we're going to get pregnant and just kind of having sex whenever you wanted to have sex? Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. 
So the first, I will say the first two months we didn't do anything. And then after it wasn't working out, we did start doing ovulation tests and timing it. And I was definitely looking into like what, like Googling, like what the optimal time is. And we definitely, we we did the it was, it's not very romantic but like you know anyone trying probably knows those calendars that you see and it's like oh this is the time or after you you're like taking the ovulation test and once you see the the smiley face or whatever it is now that I forget it's like okay and you like text or you call <laughs> yeah so we definitely were timing it tell yeah. me what that's like for your marriage when you've been together for 10 years before that or almost mm-hmm. 11 at that point. You know, I don't know if you had sex before you got married, but let's just say maybe you had been having sex for a little while and it was kind of fun and young and adventurous. Does something, I'm in my mind, something changes. Like in my mind, sex becomes different than carnal, passionate sex, but maybe it doesn't. No, you're um, totally right. I mean, it definitely does. Because also in, it's it's not spontaneous anymore. It doesn't matter if you're in the mood. I mean, to be honest with you, it doesn't matter if you're in the mood. It's like, oh, it says it's time. Let's do it. And it does. And I mean, that is a big topic, especially with people struggling with fertility for a long time, is how do you keep the romance up when you're going through everything? And yeah, just when you're trying naturally, it becomes a chore. I mean, it sounds awful to say, but and it's people get it's just emotion the fertility journey or just even trying to have kids it's it's emotionally exhausting in a way especially when it's not working so then all of a sudden stress comes into play and i've heard many people and i experience it too like once you start looking at sex in that way it does change it and it's it's hard yeah is there any advice that you would give Anyone who maybe right now is three or four months down the road and they're mm-hmm. not pregnant and is starting to go down the ovulation kits and that, yeah. like, is there any recommendation you would give to couples for helping to keep it fresh? Yeah, definitely. I would say, you know, once you start doing the ovulation kits and stuff, you, you do, as long as your period's, you know, regular, you do get a feel about when the timing will be. So if possible, I really recommend maybe planning a trip around the time that you're possibly going to be ovulating. So you make it kind of a special thing. And it's not just, you know, you're coming home from work tired or something, but you're in Paris or I don't know, like something to make it um, special and more than just we have to do this thing. And or if you can't go away every month, which I, I feel like not many of us can. You maybe around the days that you you have it, take a day off and just hang out and have a dinner. Or you don't even have, even have to have, uh, take a day off, but have us go out for dinner, have fun before. You know, don't make it something. Make that evening something special instead of just having sex and then going about your chores or whatever your everyday life. Going going back to watching TV. I don't know, but it does happen, right? So. That's what my suggestion would be. Make it special or treat, surround it with, with things that will make it special that you only do during the, that time. So you get excited about it. Yeah. I think that's really good advice. I had a very short fertility journey, so I don't want to chime in too much. 
I, it took me 10 months to ovulate. But then the first time I ovulated, I actually got pregnant with my first after 10 months of not ovulating. But my, both of my children were conceived in hotel rooms. <laughs> so because we did take your advice and we planned trips and, and went out of town for those, for those occasions. So I really feel like that advice was good. And I just wanted to bring up like there's something that like we need to say out loud and say too is because they're especially in a heterosexual relationship, if we're having fertility issues in a heterosexual relationship, there's our male partner and that's a lot of performance anxiety that can be. And so I have a lot of clients that have been on fertility journeys. And I just know that one of the things we don't talk about a lot is like there have been times where that smiley face was there, but there was so much pressure put on the partner that they weren't able to finish for better. I don't know any other way to say it, but keeping that pressure low because there has to be an ovulation that's one side and then there has to be sex. But man, there has to be a finishing of that act also in order to get sperm close to that egg that's coming down too. So I really like some of the ideas that you gave for just keeping it fresh and taking the pressure off, that kind of thing. Um, So that was one of the questions that I had for you for that first year. You said you did the IUI treatment four times. And I was just hoping that you may be able to speak to the financial impact of that. Like, did your insurance cover that? Did you have to pay out of pocket for that? How long? And then how long in between treatments did you have to wait? I was lucky financially that I did have insurance that would cover it. I know many people do not. So for the IUIs, my insurance did cover it. And I don't remember it that I had to wait in between them. And when I say cover it, it was 80%, which most, you know, I feel like in the US insurance doesn't 100% cover everything. So they covered 80%, which was a big bulk of the expenses, of course. And I didn't have to wait. I do know that in order to do an IVF, that many insurances require you do a certain number of IUIs before that to even be considered to to qualify for the IVF. And I found that out later because I switched clinics, actually. I haven't gotten to that point of the story, but I did switch clinics and I actually had to go through more IUIs because of that reason. So financially, I did. I was lucky enough to have insurance. How do you feel about the decision of the insurance companies to require pre-qualification? Like, did you feel like it was a good thing to go through IUI first? Or would you have preferred to have been able to have the option to just start with IVF? I think for that situation, my very first time, I was okay with starting with IUI just because it was the least invasive and um, require the least amount of medication. But I personally was okay with doing the IUIs for the first, at the first clinic. At the second clinic, probably not so much because I had already spent so much time on the IUIs. So was yeah. it the second clinic that they then said, okay, you went through the second round of IUIs and then they said, okay, now we're going to go ahead and do IVF. Can you walk us through your IVF journey? Yes, I can. So. I should start the reason why I changed clinics was because when the first clinic started recommending IVF, I 
And also at this point in my journey, I had not told anyone. I was, it was only me and my husband and it was years trying and I was just so isolated and I was, I just didn't want to share it. I didn't want to share this kind of problem that we had. It was really, it was almost like I felt shame that I couldn't get pregnant. And so I kept it really silent. And I will say the only person I told at this point, I, then I told my father because he's a doctor and I wanted to get his opinion on it, on the IVF. And that's when he told me I should change clinics because the clinic that I was at was a very small clinic. And he said, when it comes to IVF, it's not only the doctor, but the labs are very important. And I I only mentioned this because it was the first time that I've realized that labs, especially with fertility treatments, it's not only the doctor, but it's the whole kind of collaboration between what the labs are like in order for success in a way and what works best for you. So that's exactly why I changed to a kind of a larger institution for the IVF. And when we finally decided to do the IVF, I was so excited because at that point, we were around four years into the journey. I was 34 and I was like, okay, now is the time. Like I'm finally going to get pregnant. Everyone gets pregnant through IVF. I've heard all the stories and I was ready for my journey to kind of be resolved in, in a way. I, I was ready to hold, hold a child, hold a child that I wanted for four years now. And we started, we got the big box of meds. Um, like everyone gets, it's, it's really overwhelming and daunting this first time because it's not pills that you take, they're needles that you have to inject in yourself. And usually when you do it, like a nurse will go through it with you or they'll send you videos on how to do it. And what happens is you end up taking injections. We did it in the evenings. And uh, along with those injections, you have to go in for the morning appointments. I forget what they're called again. Louise, do you remember the morning um, almost every day? Uh, Oh, morning monitoring. Monitoring. Where yeah, they basically you go in, they check how how your how your eggs are growing, and then they take blood each time. I, I I would say like if you're if you're ever afraid of needles, you won't be after your fertility journey because you're like have needles every day. Like they're taking blood at the clinics, you're injecting yourself with needles every night. It's a lot. And it's a lot that yeah, I never realized went with the IVF journey until I went through it myself. So I I went through all of this and it was time for the retrieval. And for me, what I found for the first round is that I just don't have a lot of eggs that respond. You hear stories of people having, you know, like 20 some eggs. And I'm always in awe of that because for me, I would never get more than like 10 at most. I'm going to have to push pause because I'm like more questions are coming up from someone who's like, like I'm staring at Louise who's had this fertility journey and hearing your story. And I have these big gaping questions <laughs> as to someone who's never gone through IVF or IUI. And the first is, how long is that process? Like, so when you go to the doctor, do you go to this IVF doctor? Because now you're four years into your journey. Can we actually back up? Oh, you want to go even, even... Yeah, I want to go for, farther back. Oh, go further back, Katie. Katie go. This is Katie. I, um, <laughs> I, my question's back in the IUI 
lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, you said you did that four times, but I, I just guess I don't understand. You mentioned fewer medications was an exciting thing. You knew that there were fewer medications to have to take um, when compared to IVF. So what do those medications look like? And for each IUI cycle, is that like a normal period cycle or what does the IUI timeline look like for you to have been able to do it four times? Because you said you were able to do it back to back. Your insurance allowed you to maybe do it back to back. You said something along those lines. So can you kind of talk about that timeline and what kind of medications are required for your body to respond to IUI? Good questions, Katie. Yeah, they are good questions. For me, actually, the first, those IUIs, I took, I took no medication the first two IUIs. So that was just monitoring. It was basically like a fancy way of doing the ovulation test at home in a way, but having them really monitor you. And then once it looked like it was time, then they did that. So the first two were no medication. So it was just kind of monitoring. And then what they do also for the sperm is, so your husband or your partner or your donor, whatever you're using, will donate, like give the sperm and they, they run it through a, a cleaning. I always envisioned what this might look like, but they run it through some like fluid cleaning thing that they said cleans the sperm and allows them to swim faster and stronger. I remember they think they actually said that. And I like was imagining this little filter. You're an animator. You should animate. I know. Exactly. I'm (laughs) like, Oh, I just, guys, they've got bow ties on, like really get them scrubbed. Exactly. Like they just went through (laughs) this magical procedure and now they're like running to the egg. So they do that to the sperm before they, um, and then, then they inject the sperm up. Oh, I shouldn't say inject. They basically like put a tube up there and put it in the right place. And then they, um, and then they kind of, it is like injection, but it's, it's like not like. They just let it flow. Yeah, exactly. I'm like trying to think of a proper word to say it, but yes, thank you, Heidi. Um, (laughs) And then to your other question with the back to back, honestly, I don't, it's been a while, but um, I, yes, it's, it's per period. So it's your cycle. So usually I'll say cycles. So everything's dependent on your cycle. For me, I think I might've done a, like a couple of them back to back, but I, I definitely took some breaks in between because even though the first two weren't medication and I will say, so I, I some people do do IUIs with medication and I believe I did do one with medication, but it was just like oral medic. It wasn't anything as intensive as shots like in IVF. Okay. Katie, are you okay if I go to IVF now? (laughs) That will be, that will be okay. We can can move on. She has answered the questions on IUI that you needed. I'm sure. Go on. Because I have a lot of IVF questions. So the first one was was the timeline. So you... It's four years now, which is mind-blowing to me, into a fertility journey. I mean, that's really a journey. I think that's where that word comes from. I mean, that's a long time. And they, you go and then they give you, you said this box of needles and they send you home. But like, what type of time period for like these medications that you're having to inject before egg retrieval and then before like implantation? So it's all triggered with your period. And once you get your period, Louise, if I'm doing, if I'm saying this right now, I'm like thinking about it. It's like, yes, it's triggered triggered with your period, right? 
like once you get your period yeah so all the lab work and everything was to like really zone in on how your your cycle was to like the moment of ovulation and all that stuff and you do like a trigger shot but like when you get the box of shots in the mail or whatever you inject them for about a week in the second week you start doing like the uh, morning ultrasounds to see how the follicles are growing and then um the doctor monitors and reports to you like every other day or every day something like that to be like now we're gonna do the trigger shot and knock you out to get the eggs out the retrieval (laughs) so you have to be under general anesthesia yeah for egg retrieval yeah you're under it's surgery it's surgical I know. I don't want to know about my body in that position. (laughs) (laughs) Does it it hurt? Does it it go through your belly button or your cervix? Your belly or cervix. I mean, you know, you can be gynecological. You can do laparoscopic surgery and go in a different way. Straight bad, Joe. So it (laughs) goes through your cervix and up up your fallopian tubes, Mm -hmm. I guess, you know. Yeah, and how sick are these drugs making to your you? ovaries? Oh, they, they make you feel bad. At what point do you start to feel bad? It all depends on the person, honestly. Sure. But I mean, almost for me, it was it was almost instant. You kind of well, one, you're not allowed to exercise during this time either, which for me affected me a lot. Like, not only was I filling myself with all these meds, but I wasn't able to exercise. Do um, we know why? Yeah, I do know why, because I almost got in trouble for doing, for exercising, because I was like, what's the big deal? So when you're taking these meds, you're basically um, kind of activating all your eggs, right? And what happens is your your fallopian tubes are getting really big, and you can feel it. Like, you just feel really bloated and uncomfortable, especially towards the end, right before the retrieval. So what happens is, if you, let's say you're exercising, especially like running or jogging, you can actually twist. Okay, I'm not a medical professional, but this is what I told. You can actually like twist your fallopian tube and that will cause serious, well, serious pain, but also serious damage and possible fatal to, to your, to, I mean, like imagine it's, because it's, they're so big that they're like bouncing up and down and they could turn on itself because there's just so much going on in there. So that's what I was told why um, you, you can't exercise. Okay. That would make me not exercise. Yeah. So for me, like the men just made me, uh, it just made me feel like uh, fatigued, tired, and this really bloated type of feeling. And I could physically, it physically felt bigger. How did you feel, Louise? I just remember the bruising. Like I was a bad bruiser with all, a, a bad bruiser with like all the shots and everything. And I always joke that I'm like, you know, this was the part of like, IVF where they're like, oh, she's crazy because of all the hormone shots. And I mean, I felt like myself, but that's where some women can have some really different reactions to the hormones. But I'm sure my husband would say different. He probably thought I was crazy. <laughs> I don't know. I think it, makes you, it does make you extra emotional. Um, yeah. For sure. But yeah, if someone yeah. went up my cervix to retrieve eggs well, and I couldn't even, exercise. Yeah. But it's not only that, what you're shooting in yourself are hormones or these hormones. Yeah. I'm imagining so, some mix of progesterone, estrogen, blockers, 
Do we need, do we know? I mean, you can get very, sane. I don't know if your listeners really need to know. Like, I was just curious. Um, so. but I don't want to, I don't want this I podcast mean, to come across like I have any medical expertise you, at all. You, so you I was just curious. Don't worry about that, Heidi. <laughs> I will say, I will say though, you mentioned progesterone. I don't know if Louise remembers progesterone shots, but like, I still cringe when I hear progesterone shots, right? Isn't that the one at the, after you, you take the exam and you have to take the progesterone shots and you're. Yeah. So then you're preparing for a transfer. So then you're preparing for the embryos. So once they get your eggs out, after they knocked you out, then they combine it with your husband's sperm to make embryos. And then they either recommend like you wait a month to let your body rest to do the transfer where they put one or two embryos in you to see if it results in pregnancy or that you can do it as soon as like a few days after the retrieval, right? Mm Mm-hmm. I yeah. think I did it once that way, but the other times I did it, they recommended I let my body rest for like a month and kind of return to normal before trying the transfer. So there's the retrieval and the transfer and like a full-blown IVF. Got it. So Jasmine, on yours, you got 10 eggs. How many embryos did you get? I got probably six on the first one, six, six of them fertilized. So what, yeah, what they do is they call you up essentially like the next day and say like, okay, six of them fertilized. And for me, I was planned on doing a five day fresh transfer. So kind of Louise was saying, you know, how you can do it immediately or you wait a month or so to let your body rest. I was, my plan was to do it within five days and five days is signifies blastocyst when the embryos um, reach this blastocyst stage and kind of this ideal stage should be transferred back. And that's where I was at. And at day two, they called me up. They said six have been fertilized and I, they made me the appointment for my day five transfer. And I still remember that morning of the day five transfer. I was so excited. It was like I had done all this work, you know, all the work that we were just talking about, all those needles and appointments and everything we went through, the surgical retrieval. And as I was going out the door, my phone rang. And it was a nurse from the clinic. And she said to me, don't bother coming in because your transfer has been canceled. And I was so confused. It was my first IVF. And I, I was like, wait, what are you talking about? This is, this is the day of my transfer. This is the day. It's the closest I've been to being pregnant in the, like this four-year journey. And she said, well, we just checked this morning and none of them made it. None of my six made it to day five. And I actually didn't realize that was even a possibility. I just, I was shocked. And I, and I remember thinking like, I just went through all of that. And I felt like I didn't even get my chance. I didn't get my chance for the transfer. And it was devastating doing all that work and not getting that chance. What happened? Well, the next day we went to the doctor and she sat us down and she said, well, I think I have a new diagnosis for you. I don't think it's unexplained infertility anymore. It's poor egg quality since none of my embryos made it to day five. And that's when... At first, I was actually kind of happy that she had a diagnosis for me because we had been going so long with this unexplained infertility. I finally had something to focus on. And my first question to her was, how do I improve my egg quality? And her answer was, well, you can't. You can't improve egg quality. And that's the last answer. That's the last answer I'd want to hear. 
I kept pushing her actually. I was like, there's gotta be a way. At this point I was 35. I was like, I feel I'm, I'm young, I'm healthy. There's gotta be a way. And finally she said, well, some people say acupuncture, you know, well, can help improve things. And instantly like that within five minutes, I got a recommendation for a fertility acupuncturist and I called to make an appointment for the very next day. I mean, if she had told me, you know, go jump on one, one leg over there for 10 minutes and that's going to help you, I would have done that. I feel like when we're on these journeys, the hard thing about fertility is there's no one thing that we know that's going to work. It's everything's kind of like not again, it's, it's an unknown. You sometimes it works for someone, sometimes it doesn't. So for me, I went to the acupuncturist and that's when she said, okay, let's put you on a three-month detox because I had all these meds in my body. And she's like, let's clear out your body and let's put you on kind of this fertility diet, which meant no caffeine, no dairy, no sugar. I'm sure there's a, no carbs. It's kind of, I feel like it's like the trendy diet. Oh, gluten. Yeah, everyone's on this diet anyway, but... So yeah, and so I, I was like, okay, I'm in. Let's do like this cleanse, this detox for three months. And I read I went to acupuncture every week. And I will say during this time, it was the first time that I actually allowed myself to slow down during all these years of trying. I was like so anxious to keep on going and trying different things that it was the first time I allowed myself to be like, okay, I'm going to just like focus on getting my body in a good state. And it really allowed me to finally like figure out who I was, which is crazy to say at 34, I was like, I I didn't know who I was, but I didn't. And it was great. So what types of things like, this is where I really want to hear more of your heart, Jasmine, like Mm -hmm. what kinds of things besides acupuncture and like just food changes like what was the mind shift? Like you had mentioned that you are an artist and that you do animation. And I just was wondering if you could share with us a little bit more, a little bit deeper specifics, because this is the thing. Just like you said, if you were to stand in the corner and jump on one leg and do whatever, there are people listening to this podcast right now that just need hope. And so I feel like this is a really good chance for you to share about what worked for you to like keep joy in your life and to remain happy and the way that you figured out who you were through this journey. We're on year four and I know there's still more years to come in this journey. So do you mind just sharing a little bit more your heart on this matter? Hey, it's Heidi. I'm interrupting the podcast to let you know about a free resource that I've created for you at birthstory.com. All you have to do is go to birthstory.com and then click the tab that says the workbook. Once you put your email address in, an entire resource library of all of my secret sauces are available to you for free as my thank you for listening to the Birth Story podcast and being part of this community. At birthstory.com, under the workbook, you will find a birth plan template, articles on circumcision, delayed cord clamping, flipping a breech baby, 
packing your hospital bag, acupressure points, placenta encapsulation, and so much more. There are over 20 free articles ready for you to download at birthstory.com. Now let's get back to this amazing episode. It finally gave me time to breathe and slow down and really discover what I wanted in life and why I was going on this fertility journey and why I wanted kids so much and what would what would that bring to me. So I was so ready to do the second IVF. And when I started my second cycle of IVF at the same clinic, I was really excited, but at the same time, really scared and full of fear because of what happened the first time. So we started the second IVF and it was pretty much the same protocol the same meds. It was almost too identical to the first one. You know, I got around the same amount of eggs, a little less this time. And I had the retrieval. I believe about eight eggs were retrieved and about five fertilized. And the same exact thing around day two, they called, they said, okay, here's your day five appointment for your transfer. And those days leading up to the day five transfer, I was so on edge. I had so much anxiety because of what happened the first time. And the morning of the day five, I was actually at the acupuncturist office getting a treatment before the transfer to kind of get my body prepared for it. And I still remember I was done with my treatment and the acupuncturist walked in. And she had this look on her face and I just, I instantly knew. And she said, the clinic called, it's been canceled. And I just, I just broke down. I couldn't believe it. The same exact thing happened. None of them made it to day five. So two IVFs in a row, all the meds and everything. And I, and two surgical you know, procedures and I didn't make it to even get it to transfer. It's like, it's like in sports, you're working so hard doing practice and you never make it into the game. I felt like I was doing all this work. I took three months off and still there was no difference. At this point, I still remember walking across the park with my husband back home that morning, crying. And also at this point in the journey, it was on me. The thing about fertility is like, it's physically draining, but it's what's worse or what's the hardest part, at least for me, is the emotional. Also in the guilt too. I had so much guilt that was in me because at this point I was the barrier. It was egg quality that was preventing us from having a baby. And for me, it was so hard to know that I might be the barrier of my husband becoming a father. And I didn't mention this before, but you know, like when you meet someone and you know, they're like meant to do something or they'd be great at that. My husband was the type of guy that he, he was meant to be a dad. Like he was way more paternal than I was. And I always knew he'd be a amazing father. And the fact that I could be the one in his way to becoming a father was eating me inside. And I never said anything to him about it, but on that walk back from the park after the second failed IVF cycle, I actually told him that, you know, if this doesn't work out, I need him to go. Like I need him to go. He's still young. I need him to go find someone else and have a family because 
if it doesn't work out, I can figure it out. I'll be okay. But I can't know that I stopped him from being a father. And I still get emotional rethinking that. My husband instantly said, no. He said, no, we're going to figure this out together. I'm not going to let you off the hook. <laughs> and we, we walked home. We had a good evening. And we, I, I, ran, I pumped myself back up because that's another thing when you're going through fertility struggles. It's a constant emotional roller coaster, right? You get completely devastated. And then you have to pump yourself back up and put yourself through, like, be hopeful and positive because another cycle is around the corner and you have to try, you know, you have to keep on trying. It's this emotional roller coaster of like devastation to like, okay, I'm ready for the next one. That's why fertility, we call each other as like fertility warriors because we are. It's like we get so strong from this journey because there's so much pain, but then there's so much strength that comes out of it. So that's exactly what I did. Like that next morning, again, we went to the doctor and I, I put myself together and I was really positive. And I was like, okay, we're going to figure this thing out. And we met with the doctor and we sat down and she started instantly talking to us about egg adoption. Um, oh no, sorry, egg donor or adoption. And I, I remember like stopping her. I was like, wait, can I, can I not try another cycle with my own eggs? And she just kind of said, no, I don't recommend it. That's two cycles where, you know, they didn't make it to day five. I would only recommend egg donor and adoption. And I was like, that can't be it. I mean, or there, is there no chance? And then she, she said, I give you less than a 1% chance of having a child with your own eggs. And that's when, you know, infertility is you also deal a lot with statistics and probability. And you hear you know, pretty low odds, but to hear less than 1% is the lowest odd odds I had ever heard on my own fertility journey. And I was just like, that doesn't sound good. No. And, and here I was, and at this point I was actually 35. So here I am in the doctor's office at 35. This is when I was supposed to have three kids by now. And five years later, five years later, and nowhere close to being pregnant, never never being pregnant throughout that whole five years and now being told that I had a less than 1% chance of having a child with my own eggs and that I should just stop trying. I mean, she told me to stop trying and just start looking into egg donors or adoption as my only alternatives. That was hard. <laughs> it's, you get so many, so, so many diagnoses and probabilities, but that by far... I was, I left like feeling numb. I didn't know what to do. And I still remember that morning, it was a morning appointment and me and my husband just kind of gave each other a big hug and we said, well, we'll talk about it later. And we kissed each other and we went back to work. We went to work. And that's the crazy thing with fertility too, is this is all done in secret. Like no one knows that we've been struggling for five years. I have to go into work and put on a happy face, not, not like I've just been told I, w- I have less than 1% chance of having a child. And that's exactly what I did. And I remember I, was, I cried on the train on the way to work, and then I put myself together. And while I was at work, and I was trying to preoccupy myself with work things, so I didn't have to think about my personal obstacles, is 
that was my kind of aha moment where, you know, I had hit rock bottom essentially in my fertility journey. I, I had just been told to stop trying and I was tackling a problem at work and I was doing it in this, in the way I have been doing it for two decades, you know, with this kind of artist mindset that I'm an expert at. And what my aha moment was, is that I realized the way that I problem solve and tackle obstacles at work was nothing like I was doing in my own fertility journey, where at work, I would assess, I would make sure I'm solving the right problem, I would get multiple opinions, and find multiple solutions to the same problem, to one problem. In my fertility journey, I realized I had been doing it blindly. I just went to one clinic. I spoke to one doctor. I followed what he said. Then, okay, maybe I did I did switch clinics, but I didn't question anything. And I just, I didn't research enough. I didn't get second opinions. And at that point, I honestly had nothing to lose. And I said, you know what? Let's Let's try this method with my fertility journey. Let's not give up right now. And let's, let's look at this the way I'd look at a challenge or a problem at work. And how would I tackle that? And that's when I had that right radical mindset, mindset shift. I was like, okay, what would I do if, you know, using my expertise in, in the art field, I was like, how would I problem solve this? And I was like, I would get second opinions. I would get other people from different parts of the industry too, not only Western medicine, but Eastern medicine. And I, the very next day I went to my acupuncturist and I spoke to her about it and we kind of brainstormed and she said, I don't think this is the end of the journey for you. I think you should, you should go see this other doctor at another clinic. And I think you guys would, he would be a good fit for you. So I was like, okay, let's do that. And that's exactly what I did. And this this time, I will say he was not in my insurance. So finance was a thing, but it wasn't going to stop me. I was like, I'm going to try to do this. And I met with him. And in that first meeting, he went over my my labs and everything. And he said, well, you know, I think it is probably egg quality, but I don't agree with the less than 1% probability. And just like him saying that just made all the difference, you know, and like he gave you back hope. Exactly. It gave me back hope. But then it also made me realize, you know, doctors are just human too, right? And I feel like especially in the medical field, we give doctors, and I have full respect for doctors. My dad is a doctor, but like we give them almost like too much, not response, but we like when they say something, we're like, okay, that's that's it. Because he said it and he's a doctor, but they're only human, right? So it's only right to get other opinions to make sure you're getting the right care or the right care for you. So he, he looked at my, my labs and he said, well, let's not, obviously the five-day transfer is not working for you. Let's try a three-day transfer. And I didn't even realize that was a possibility to do a three-day transfer. And I said, yes, let's try it. And that's also part of kind of that artist mindset, designer thinking, design thinking type of process where you test and iterate. If something fails, then you don't just call it a day. You go back and be like, well, let's tweak this one part of it, right? And see if that works. And you keep on iterating. And that's what that last clinic didn't do. They essentially did the same two protocols in a row 
the same exact thing happened twice. And they said, nope, it's not going to work. So that's exactly what we did. And I did my third IVF. And all the beginning bits were pretty much the same. The amount of eggs, you know, around the same. And we went through the surgical, all the meds, all the appointments, um, and the surgical retrieval. But the difference was for this time on my day three transfer, I actually did not get that call that it was canceled, which was such, I still remember like sitting in the waiting room of the hospital and be like, I can't believe I'm actually here for the transfer. I finally made it. And I got, I transferred two embryos on that day three and I waited and that's like where the waiting period happened. And that, at that point, that was the closest that I've ever gotten. And at that point, it was nearly six years. And I got pregnant. I was like, we got a little sneak peek a minute ago because I heard a child in the background. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Is I that pregnant. the child that we heard in the background? Yes, probably is. Yes. Okay. I was like, Jasmine, I'm not going to be able to handle this if you lost this baby. <laughs> I was like... Oh gosh. Yeah. So, and the crazy thing is, this was only a couple months after I was sitting in that other doctor's office being told I have less than a 1% chance that I'm getting a call that I'm pregnant. I couldn't believe it. It was, it was crazy because I, it, I could have, I thought about stopping. I was exhausted. I had been trying for five years and I had just been told to stop trying. And I, I was like, no, I can't, I'm going to, I'm going to give it this, this shot. Like I have to keep, I have to try this. And I still think about it to this day. You know, if I have listened and not used kind of my mindset at work to start, and really just start advocating for myself too, but also starting using this method of like, getting multiple opinions, and then also finding different solutions for it. I just can't imagine where I'd be today. I can't either. I mean, I've just learned so much just from hearing you, like just just that little mind shift of going back into like creative or ideation mode, like thinking outside the box, getting multiple opinions. Jasmine, I know that you have a free course that you've written to help people through this journey. Can you share with us a little bit about like why you wrote a course, what someone might find in it and how they can access it for free? Yeah. So after I did this, after this, this worked for me, it was something that I always wanted to share because honestly, I had never, I had never really seen it out there, especially in the fertility space. You know, people are talking all about diets and, you know, what all about like exercises and whatnot, but no one was doing what I did. And it made such a difference in my journey. So it took me a little bit of time, but I finally sat down and I took two year, two decades of experience as an artist and my method, how I, you know, think in that, in those terms and to join it with my unique experience during my fertility struggles, my fertility journey of nearly of six years. And I combined it and I sat down and created a framework of how I did it. And that's exactly what I did. And that's what I share with people in the free training. 
and how they can themselves do it as well. This allows you to find multiple solutions to know that, oh, it's going to be okay. It's, it's just when I was on my journey, I just wanted to know I was going to be okay no matter what. And regardless if you get, honestly, if you get pregnant or not. So glad that your story, though like very long and arduous and difficult, like ended with a happy ending and a successful transfer. And if anyone's listening that is really interested in getting your free guide, where would they find it? Yeah, they can find it on my website. So if you go to jazzkatat slash free training, they can find it at jazzkatat.com. They can find me on Instagram at jazzkatat. Well, Jasmine, it has been amazing recording with you today. I'm just so thankful and thanks to Louise and Katie for jumping in and really just hearing your story and being able to share a little bit too. But I really appreciate the advice that you have given and walking us through what it is like to be in your shoes and to be on this long fertility journey. I think it's really going to help a lot of people listening. So like I said earlier in the podcast, I hope that people will push pause at the end of this episode and share it with a friend or a loved one that they know is on this journey. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Heidi. And it was great to talk to you too, Louise and Katie. Yes. Great to meet you. Thank you for listening to Birth Story. My goal is you will walk away from each episode with a clear picture of how labor and delivery might go and that you will feel empowered by the end of your pregnancy to speak up, plan and prepare for the birth you want, no matter what that looks like.